We're in Daniel chapter 2, and Jeff was gracious enough to give me only three verses. So you guys are going to get out of here in good time, hopefully. If you don't have a Bible with you, or you're new and visiting, we invite you to grab uh, one of the Bibles in front of the chair backs in front of you, and we always uh, make that offer to you. That's a free gift to you if you don't have a Bible, and if you have maybe somebody in your life that needs a Bible and a copy of God's Word, you can take that and give that to them. We will put another one in there. Um, we believe that God's Word is active and living, and so if we can hand that out and get that into people's hands and they're going to read it, uh, we believe it's going to change people's lives. So that's what we um, are about here at the church, and hopefully as you're following along in Daniel, you can see that the things that I share with you this morning come from God's Word and are not just my uh, opinions as we walk through these final verses of chapter 2 of Daniel. So before we read Daniel, the end of chapter 2, the four verses, what have we learned so far? We've been in Daniel chapter 2 for four weeks now, so we should probably do a little bit of a recap because I started the chapter and I don't know if anyone even remembers what we talked about in the first few verses of Daniel chapter 2. So what have we learned so far in Daniel chapter 2? We learned that it makes sense to trust God, right? It makes sense to trust God, to believe God that when He says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. You can stand firm in the sovereignty of God, which is our tagline for the book of Daniel. God is in control. Our whole goal in life is to honor and glorify God. Daniel is an example of that. If you give God the glory, then people are going to be more interested in God than they are in you. If you give God the glory. At the beginning of Daniel chapter 2, we learned about peace. Right, That worldly peace will never satisfy. You will always be left wanting if you're going to the world for satisfaction. As Nebuchadnezzar saw the dream and saw his kingdom maybe being threatened, right? he's realizing that everything that he's been living for has no eternal value. And so where does he go for peace? Daniel chapter 2 teaches us that you can praise God in all circumstances. Daniel 1 and 2 certainly so far. Right? Daniel is faced with the end of his life. And what does he do? He goes to God in prayer. He believes God. He trusts God. He praises God. And he asks God to have mercy on him. And God reveals the dream to him, which was all part of his plan to do. He was extremely clear that it was God who was to get the glory. What else did we learn? There's two kingdoms, as Pastor Jeff shared last week. There's two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Right? And the kingdom of God is eternal and undestructible and unstoppable. It's inevitable. And the man's kingdoms are going to rise and they're going to fall. Right? Kings will come and go. Leaders will come and go. Political leaders will come and go. But one king remains forever. So the question for us is, what kingdom are we living for? Right? Contagious certainty is the response of God's people when we read Daniel. Contagious certainty from what we've read and studied so far. And so this morning we're going to turn our eyes to the last four verses of Daniel chapter 2, reminding ourselves what it means to worship God and what worship of God looks like as members of God's eternal kingdom. Not forgetting what has been revealed in this dream to to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And worship is showing reverence and adoration and awe for God, for our God, for our Creator, for our Sustainer. 
Worship is our response to God and for who He is and what He's done. So let's read Daniel chapter 2 as we think of worship this morning. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and he paid homage to Daniel and he commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. There's a couple things we're going to see. You're probably looking at that and going, how are we going to turn this into half an hour? I know, right? I was thinking the same thing on Monday. But there's a few things in here that are good for us, I think. In fact, we should see uh, as we walk through it. And so we see King Nebuchadnezzar's response finally to what we've been studying for three weeks. How is he going to respond to this miraculous dream that he is given from God, as Daniel says? And this is it in verse 46 and verse 47. And then also what Daniel does with it. So how we break it down, I think, is the worship of Nebuchadnezzar towards God, and then the worship that Daniel has towards God. And there's two uh, examples for us in the way that these two characters in this story worship God. The first one is Nebuchadnezzar's response in verse 46 and 47, which is temporary worship. We finally get to see the response, and Daniel comes to him and tells him that only God can reveal this dream to you. And you know what Nebuchadnezzar said in there. What does he say? He says, you've been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar, I spent like how much time telling you just a moment ago that this is all God and nobody can do this but, but God. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, you're amazing. Here's all the gifts. Here's a promotion for what you have done. And it was like, no, he doesn't get it. This was God who had done this. Question for you. How would you have expected Nebuchadnezzar to respond after having a dream of this magnitude interpreted for him? And considering what Daniel said to him before, Nebuchadnezzar, only God can reveal this. How will we expect Nebuchadnezzar to respond to that? I think probably you're thinking he would acknowledge God's kingship, or maybe that his kingship, Nebuchadnezzar's, was a gift from God. He should have realized that his own kingdom was just a passing episode, according to the the dream and its interpretation. Maybe he would have submitted his life to God. To Daniel's God, certainly. Those are all things I think would be reasonable for us to expect to see from Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, what is the first thing that we see? The first thing we see is fleeting appreciation. What does the text tell us? The king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and he paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar responded by paying homage and incense to this miraculous event. Of course, that would make sense. But he did it to Daniel, right? He didn't do it to God. Why did he do it to Daniel and not to God? Because Daniel didn't know, or sorry, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know Daniel's God. Right? He sees Daniel. Daniel does this miraculous thing for him, and he says it's his God, and that's great. But Nebuchadnezzar is trying to honor somebody, and the only way he sees fit to do that is to honor Daniel's God through... Daniel. So Daniel probably doesn't accept this as worship um, and, and 
take the praise, as we read in the previous, or in the rest of the chapter, we know where Daniel's heart is at. He's giving God the glory. But Nebuchadnezzar is trying to, trying to praise and worship God through Daniel. And so that's the best that he can, can come up with is by paying homage to Daniel. And it's interesting because that picture of Nebuchadnezzar towards Daniel and towards Daniel's God is the picture, it should be the picture of our hearts to God right now. Worship. That's our primary responsibility, is worship of God, to bow down and to worship Him for who He is. And yet we don't see that in Nebuchadnezzar's response. I don't think. And so the question is, do you think that Nebuchadnezzar's worship was genuine? And I think we know that his worship was not genuine because if you, as we're going to get into next week, we'll just steal a little bit off the top of Jeff's sermon next week. Let's go to chapter 3. Right afterwards, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and on and on this image goes. And what does he command the, everybody in Babylon to do? Worship it and bow down to it. Do you think that his worship to Daniel was sincere? Do you think his worship to Daniel's God was genuine. If it was, it was only because it was expedient for him, right? Daniel's God has helped me. He's done this miraculous thing for us. Yeah, I'll worship him for that. That's great. But it didn't last. He only worshiped God because he was helping him. And sometimes that's a posture of our hearts if we're honest. That's us, right? We only go to God, we only thank God when He's helpful to us, right? When He answers our prayers. But when things around us aren't going the way that we want to, that can be a bit of a hard thing to praise God and worship Him still and be committed and faithful to Him still. And so we don't want to be as Nebuchadnezzar was in his worship of God where he has his fleeting appreciation. But the second thing we see in verse 47 is his acknowledgement of God which just goes to further the point that his conversion was not genuine or his profession even was certainly not lasting. What does Nebuchadnezzar say of Daniel's God in verse 47? The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery, Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was adding Daniel's God to his pantheon of gods already. Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. He had many different gods that they worshipped. Marduk was the god of Babylon, the primary god. And Daniel saw this, or Nebuchadnezzar rather, saw this as an opportunity to add another powerful god to that pantheon. Okay? He's not a monotheist just because he says these words. Our passage that we read this morning in Matthew, which is a quote of Isaiah, right? That we're... We honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. And that can be also a picture of our hearts sometimes, right? Where it's very easy to acknowledge God and to say, yes, you are God, but then to not live as if God actually is God and if God actually is in control of your life, right? It's very easy to have God as an add-on to our lives. And we certainly are warned, I think, as we look at this, not to have God and not to treat Him as such. And that's why Matthew was included in our liturgy this morning. There is no commitment. There is no submission for Nebuchadnezzar. Only acknowledgement that this God was certainly a great God. John 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, 
that, you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Many are like Nebuchadnezzar. They know God. They're fine to acknowledge God. The possibility of God's existence is great. If it's expedient for me and it works out for me, this belief in God, then I will continue on in that. But as soon as it doesn't, that gets challenged. Or maybe there's people that are like, oh yes, I am a Christian. I went to church, you know, I used to go to church a while ago. Or I grew up in the church, right? I'm a Christian. Or I married a Christian. Or my family are Christians. Or I did this one thing that one time and I am a Christian. Did Nebuchadnezzar truly repent? Or did he just find relief in knowing that his kingdom was the kingdom of gold at the top of the statue, right? And therefore, he knew, well, my kingdom's going to last. It's kind of like that Hezekiah, the passage we read about Hezekiah, right? Where he doesn't really care that God's going to judge him. He's like, God says, well, it's not going to be, it's going to be for your following generations that you're going to be judged. And Hezekiah's like, well, that's great. Then if, you know, if that's for later, that's fine, right? And, and Nebuchadnezzar has a similar response, I think, right? It's okay, I'm the kingdom of gold, so I'm the greatest kingdom, forgetting the rock that is coming to destroy those things. So it's not true worship. It's not true conversion. And then finally we see in Nebuchadnezzar's worship of, of God, his false worship of God, <clears throat> his temporary worship, the absence of relationship. Nebuchadnezzar did not have a personal relationship with God, not like Daniel had. Nebuchadnezzar had an experience with God, right? A miraculous experience where he was about to kill all the wise men in his country and God intervened with Daniel and provided an interpretation. But there was no personal relationship. And you can never replace an experience with God for a relationship with God. They're two different things, right? God can reveal Himself and can do miraculous things, and we can be witnesses of those things, but it's not the same as actually having a personal relationship with God. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. When they were in the garden before the fall of mankind, before sin came and separated everything, the relationship that they experienced with God, where God would come and dwell with them and walk with them and talk with them and be with them in the garden. We kind of assume that because God shows up after Adam and Eve's sin. Right? They choose to disobey. And what happens? They become separated from God. They become disconnected from their Creator, from God. And what does God do to Adam and Eve? He banishes them from His presence without relationship. And so then in order for, to have a relationship with God, you must come in repentance and faith. You must understand that the penalty for your sin is death and that apart from God and His Son, Jesus Christ, you have no life, you have no chance of a relationship with God without Jesus Christ. Your sin separates you like it did Adam and Eve in the garden, and that needs to be dealt with. And the question is, did Nebuchadnezzar see that? Did he understand that? The Bible says the only way is through death, the death of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar needed his sin dealt with, and in the biblical sense, conversion then means a turning, a spiritual turning. A reversal. Turning away from sin and, rep and going to, towards repentance and faith in Christ. 
Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this according to what we see. And as we go through Daniel, it takes a little bit of more of God's intervening work to really get a hold of Nebuchadnezzar. There's no decisive breaks in the sin patterns as we see in the next chapter. And Judas Iscariot is an example in some ways of Nebuchadnezzar. Judas Iscariot walked with Jesus. Judas Iscariot saw all the miraculous things that God, Jesus did in the power of God. Judas Iscariot saw the disciples, saw how much they loved him, saw how much God, um, as he spoke to them and as he taught them, the things that they were learning. And what does Judas Iscariot do when given an opportunity? He betrays Jesus, right? And he saw all of those things, just like Nebuchadnezzar sees these miracles. Lips that praise God, but a heart that is far from Him. In a counterfeit conversion, there's no death to self. There's no submission to the Lordship of Christ. There's no taking up a cross. There's no obedience in following Christ. There's no fruit of repentance. Only empty words, shallow feelings, and barren religious activities. That's false conversion. That's counterfeit conversion. Where there's true conversion, sin is turned from. Sin is hated. The world is renounced, at least the things of the world. Pride is crushed. Self is surrendered. Faith is exercised. And Christ is seen as the most precious thing in in all of the world. The cross is embraced as one's only saving hope. What does 2 Corinthians tell us in chapter 5, verse 18? All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The whole purpose of conversion is to bring men and women into a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God. That's it. Nebuchadnezzar was awed by God, but his worship only lasted as long as it was helpful for him. And that certainly is a challenge for us this morning. But then in the final two verses, we see something different. We see Daniel's worship, Daniel's response. And it is enduring worship in verse 48 and 49. Let me read it for you again. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. We notice the contrast here. King Nebuchadnezzar was just about ready to go off the deep end the other side and kill everybody, every wise man. He did say, though, that these great gifts are for you if you can interpret this dream, which nobody knows. And then he makes good on it, right? And you can see the extravagance of what Nebuchadnezzar offers to Daniel in his promotion. He was made ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel had showed, he showed quite a difference in his response to the miracle that he just witnessed. First thing is gratitude. The difference between Nebuchadnezzar's gratitude and Daniel's gratitude is clearly seen. Daniel gave all the glory to God in Daniel chapter 2. But what else does he do? When Nebuchadnezzar honored him, Daniel did not forget his friends. The three friends that stood with him in Daniel chapter 1 and went through all the training from the Babylonian officials and stood um, and were faithful to God through all that. And Daniel remembers them, right? 
the promotion did not go to Daniel's head. He did not go, well, yes, I am the wisest because God used me to reveal this dream and therefore this is where I should be. But he certainly brought his friends along in that he thought of his friends in the midst of that. And he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he makes a request to him. And of, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is going to listen. You have the wisest man in the, plan, in, in the province of Babylon coming to you with some advice. You're probably going to listen, right? Daniel gave God all the glory and he thought of others. He was not selfish. He was not self-seeking. And so the question is, for us, why did Nebuchadnezzar promote Daniel? And maybe thinking about that as well, do you think Daniel wanted to be promoted? We'll maybe come to that in a moment. But do you think Daniel wanted this promotion? Why did Nebuchadnezzar promote Daniel? Daniel never purposefully manipulated his situation and his circumstances so that he'd be in a position where he could then be in leadership in Babylon, right? That was all God. We know that. Nebuchadnezzar, or Daniel, was certainly just doing what God had asked him to do, which was be faithful to him and to worship him and to honor and glorify him above everything else. And God said, I'm going to put you at the top in a godless society, in exile, nonetheless. Do you think Daniel wanted to be promoted? But why did Nebuchadnezzar do it? Because Daniel was wise, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar had seen, I'm going to have to kill all the wise men in the province of Babylon if this dream is not revealed. And who other than Daniel steps in with wisdom from God and reveals and answers really the impossible question. And so for us, it makes sense, right? This, is, this would naturally happen. If Nebuchadnezzar believes him to be the wisest man and he has this wisdom from God, then of course... I'm going to give you everything and make you wise man over all of Babylon. Let's read Colossians 2, verse 2 and 3. Paul says this of Jesus Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible tells us very clearly that wisdom is only found in Jesus Christ and in God. And that the wise person peers past all earthly pursuits that they may have Christ. What does Paul say in Philippians? I count everything as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Wisdom is only found in Christ, according to Paul. So does it make sense then, as Nebuchadnezzar sees the wisdom of God in Daniel, does it not make sense then for us when we consider what the Bible says about wisdom, that it's only found in Christ, if Jesus is the perfect source of wisdom, to allow Him to help you make choices. Or maybe you leave Christ out in your life decisions, in your family time, in your downtime, in your conversations, in all your coming and going throughout the week with your coworkers. Is Jesus the perfect source of wisdom? If He is, it makes sense to include Him in what my plans are for my life. My plans are. God's plans are for my life, right? In Nebuchadnezzar's case, it's His plans that He wants to bring Daniel along into. Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel because of his wisdom. And so we see that, we see Daniel's response, his worship, his gratitude to God. And then we see, final, or secondly, I should say, his trust in God. All along, through the first few chapters of Daniel, we have seen Daniel's resolve to trust in the sovereignty of God and to stand firm in it. 
Daniel did not back out on what God had for him. Do you think Daniel wanted to be promoted in Babylon? Of all the places. Some of you are like, you know, if that was me, yeah, get me in there. You know, prime minister of the country, I can do a better job, right? I can make better decisions. Certainly. You think, right? And we think that of ourselves. And certainly for us, we look at Daniel and go, yeah, a position of high authority, that's a great spot to be. But do you think Daniel wanted to be promoted? He didn't back out. He wasn't like Moses. Remember when God came to Moses at the burning bush and he asked him to go back to Israel and speak to them and Moses said, I can't do it. I can't, I can't talk. And, and God says, well, I'll help you out with that. And Moses is still unsure about whether he should do it. And Daniel, <clears throat> God's asking a pretty tall order, right? The, the, pro, or the Israelites are in exile and God says, I'm going to put you as the highest official in Babylon, and your three friends are going to go with you. And Daniel doesn't back down on this. He trusts God. How big was Babylon? If you look at a map of the Middle East, Babylon at the height of its, or the peak, I should say, of its empire under Nebuchadnezzar was most of the Middle East. Parts of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, all through the center of the Middle East there. And this is a big, big empire that Daniel is being asked to serve in. And what was Daniel's response? Certainly of trust, but also in verse 49, Daniel made a request to the king, and he asked that his three friends be made um, officials over the, uh, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. He didn't complain. He didn't opt out. Daniel understood, I'm here for a reason, and I'm going to trust God with that. You know what else he doesn't do? We shared that verse Daniel doesn't isolate himself, right? He doesn't go off into hiding. He doesn't go and just kind of lay low, do my thing for the 70 years that I'm going to be here, and then once God has a plan to bring us out of this, we're, we're good. He gets his hands dirty. Be honest. Have you ever wanted out of the situation you're in? Maybe the country, maybe the city, Maybe the town. You ever wanted out? You ever doubted God and where He's placed you and the things that He's given you in this life? If we're honest, that's probably most of us. You're asking, are you sure, God, that this is what you want for me? And you notice that Daniel doesn't complain like we do typically of our situation our politics, all these things. Daniel doesn't complain about it. We f don't forget that Nebuchadnezzar is wicked, okay? And Babylon is wicked. This is not a place you want to go because life is going to be good for you as an exile, right? These kingdoms that, have, that are full of godlessness are not good places to be. And Daniel doesn't complain to God that is this really what you want to do here in this country or in this province, God, with me here? Is this really what you want? Because he understands that God's got a master plan and part of that master plan is that Daniel doesn't get to understand everything. right? And that's the case for you and me. We don't get all the details of life. But God has placed you and me right where we are for a particular reason at a particular time for His glory. Right? For His purposes. 
The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Wherever you go, the chief end of man doesn't change. It's to glorify God. And the reality, like it was for Daniel, was that God has earthly work for Daniel to do. And He wanted him in Babylon to be doing that. If that wasn't the case, if God didn't have stuff for us to do, He'd take us to be with Him now. Right? You ever wondered why I'm not in heaven with God right now? It's because God has stuff for us to do here, right now. Spreading the kingdom, which we learned about last week. The eternal kingdom. Being a part of the spreading of that kingdom. And so maybe we ought to love the place that we would rather leave. Whatever that place in your life is that you would rather be away from, maybe it's to love that and to lean into that and to glorify God through that and to seek Him. A quote I read in through the commentaries as, we were, as I was studying this week reads this, Seeking to transform our culture can sometimes become an idolatrous pursuit that takes our eyes off of God. We start seeking the transformation of the culture for our own purposes. But we disguise them by saying, well, this is what God would want. Right? And become, when it becomes all about transforming the culture and less about glorifying God, maybe that's when it becomes idolatrous. I was able to go to uh, an ARPA meeting this week, which is Association of Reform Political Action, I believe, and they came, they're going across the country right now, and I was just going to <clears throat> learn a few things, see what they had to say, what they had to share, and uh, their mission is to educate, equip, and encourage Reformed Christians to political action and to bring a biblical perspective to our civil authorities, but, because that sounds like rebellious a little bit, right? <clears throat> I know, I was a little uncomfortable sitting there too. But one of the things they said multiple times was this. Relationships first, policies second. That is the truth of political action. That's the truth of Daniel living in a country that hates God. Relationships first, policies second. Otherwise it becomes idolatry. It becomes all about the policies and less about the person that you are trying to introduce Christ to. There's no doubt that when Daniel was promoted, he was going to experience trials, right? People were going to come to him, certainly the wise men, because you can imagine the wise men now, Daniel, it doesn't say whether or not they were killed or not, so we can surmise, but I suspect even if they were, that new wise men would replace them in the ranks at some point, and you certainly can guarantee that those people were going to give Daniel a hard time with his worldview, right? That was going to happen. So Daniel was going to experience trials, he was going to experience questions of compromise, no doubt. And we're going to read about that as we walk through the rest of Daniel. Why would they be happy about having Daniel as their boss? And we're going to see what Daniel and his friends do as they stand firm in God's sovereignty and on God's Word throughout the rest of the book. And so let's come to our final point then. In Daniel's worship, this is what Daniel's worship looks like. First, gratitude to God. Glory to God. Then trust in God and staying where God had placed him and embracing that, and then finally seeking first the kingdom of God. We've talked a little bit about this verse as we've walked through Daniel 2 already, but Matthew 6, verse 33 says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now part of how we understand that verse 
is that we don't have to worry about everything because God's going to provide for us. That's true. That's certainly true. And he provides for the sparrows. And if he's going to provide for the sparrows as he does and naturally to the lilies, certainly guys, as God's children, God's going to provide for you. He's going to give you what you need. That's true. But are we always going to give, be given everything that we need to survive? No, that's not true. We're all going to die at some point. God's not, oh, this doesn't mean that this doesn't promise us life forever. Jesus doesn't mean that if we seek Him first, we'll have everything we need to survive. What He's saying is, you'll have everything you need to glorify God right now in this circumstance that you're in. If you seek first God's kingdom. If you put God first. Daniel and his three friends, they worship God by seeking first His kingdom. I want you to turn to uh, Jeremiah 29. It's just back a little bit in your Bibles. We're going to read for you a few verses in Daniel 29. Give you a second to get there. We love Daniel 29. Or sorry, did I say Daniel 29? Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29. We love Jeremiah 29 11 for good reason. It sounds like a really good promise for us, but there's some things before Jeremiah 29 that I want to read for us. Jeremiah 29. Now, Jeremiah and, and Daniel are contemporaries, as you're going to learn as we read these verses. If you didn't know that, that's okay. Jeremiah 29, let me read verse 1 through 7 for you. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is Daniel and his, and his friends and the nation of Israel. Verse 2, this was after King Jeconia and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had deported from Jerusalem. And the letter was sent by hand um, of Alessa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamaria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice who takes credit for the exile. God does. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on, on its behalf for in it, sorry, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is what Daniel did when he was placed as an official over all of Babylon. These are the things that Daniel did. What are they? Do the ordinary things. Certainly in verse 5. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, have their produce. <clears throat> That's a bit different than what you and I would like to do sometimes when we look around us right now. I would like to, maybe you would like to, run, leave, flee, get out of here, right? Whatever situation that you're in. And yet, what does God tell the people in exile to do in Jeremiah? Do the ordinary things, like get married, take care of your home, be a good neighbor, these types of things don't contaminate you. You do not have to go and isolate yourself 
for fear of contamination with the world, because we know the Bible tells us not to love the world, right, but to be in it. It's not going to contaminate you doing these things. If you're doing them for King Jesus and not for selfish reasons. In verse 6, do not decrease. We see that salt and light principle as Christians. Right? If you were to take all of the Christians out of the world, what would the world look like? Maybe that's a question for us to consider. If you took Grace Baptist out of, Grace, uh, out of Charlottetown, would anybody even notice? Or would just us notice? Because we're all about ourselves. Right? We talk about community impact and how important it is for us to be a light to the world. Would people notice? Would your family notice? I mean, they'd notice if you were gone, certainly, yeah. But like, would they actually, would it make a difference really besides your physical presence not being there? Right, the values that Christians have, what they have to offer the world through the Holy Spirit living inside of them, not to pat ourselves on the back, is a good thing. According to Jeremiah 29.11, and God tells them not to decrease because you're salt and light. There's a preservation amongst God's people in a culture when they promote godliness in their lives, in the way that they live. And so what does it say in verse 7 of Jeremiah 29? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's kind of like what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe in your despair and everything that you're going through, you're kind of just holding on to a few things. I got to keep my kids happy. I got to get through the day and I got to do my work and then find some rest time and that's it. And maybe that's all you feel like you can really do. What does God through Jeremiah tell the exiles to do and what does he tell us to do? To do the ordinary things, to seek God's kingdom first. Luke chapter 8, 38 says this. Jesus says this to the man that had the, the demons that he cast out into the pigs that went over the cliff. This is what he says. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying this. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. That's what we got to do. Talk about how much God has done for us. Not just to our friends here at the church but to our neighbors, to our sports friends, to whoever it is. Speak of, the, of God. Speak of what He's done for you. But also, what does it say in verse 7? To pray. right? As you seek the welfare of the city, in doing that, you're seeking welfare for yourself. God's going to bless you through doing that. Nebuchadnezzar was not a good king. Don't forget that. When this promise comes to, or when this command comes through Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar was not a good king. right? So he's saying, seek the welfare of your city in a kingdom that is godless, right? Don't run and hide in it, but seek the welfare of it. So you're telling me that praying for the welfare of my country, even though I have a bad leader, is what I should do? Yes, probably. Probably should pray for the welfare of your country rather than your political leader being kicked out. You don't only pray for good leaders, you pray for all leaders. Ask God for good things to happen in your city, in your community, remembering that we're, in, that we're aliens and strangers, that God still has a plan for us. Don't love the world. Seek God's kingdom first. But you can't do that, all of that without offering a solution to 
the eternal suffering that's going on around us. And so we need the gospel as much a part of all of that as we live in our cities. Christians ought to be the most optimistic people in their cities. And sadly, we find that not to be the case sometimes or often. So Christian, how are you going to worship God today? How should you worship God today? Be grateful to God for the great blessings that He's chosen for you in Christ. Trust God that He's placed you in Charlottetown right now, PEI, Canada, with work to be done for His glory. And seek God's kingdom first above everything else. Do good for the benefit of Charlottetown. Pour yourselves into seeking the welfare of Charlottetown. Pray that God would move in Charlottetown. Build relationships with your neighbors and share what God has done and share Christ with them. Because God has placed you for a reason. He's not frustrated with the political landscape, with the conditions of the world right now. He's not frustrated. His plans are not being thwarted. He's still sovereign and we can stand firm in that sovereignty. And when you seek God's kingdom first, all the things in the world will become less interesting to you. Let's pray. God, we thank You again for this morning and this time to be here together. We thank You, God, for the many things that You are worthy of in our lives for our worship. And God, we do pray that You would help us as we go this week. Give us opportunities to share what You have done, to share Christ with our friends, to share Christ with our neighbors. Lord, give us boldness and courage and opportunities to share how good You are and what You have done. And may You not let us be quiet. May You give us boldness and courage, God. We don't want to be a people that uh, shrink in a culture that doesn't know You, God, but we want to be people that stand firm in this culture and in this city in which You've given us, God. We want to be obedient to You and we want to be a part of the spread of Your kingdom which is happening regardless of our assistance in it, God. And yet You choose to use us and we are so grateful for that, God. And so we ask that You would work in us and that You would help us to worship You with our hearts and our lives. Help us not just to honor You with our lips as we've come here this morning, but help us as we leave to be having heart change for what You've done for us, for who You are to us, God. And we thank You so much for Your Word this morning. And we ask that it would challenge and change us as we go. And we pray it be all done to Your glory and for Your praise and in Your name. Amen.